You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A little bit of thank you before we start the episode. Late last year, Karen talked me into adding Patreon to Monster Talk as a way of letting listeners show support for the show. At the time, I wasn't sure I wanted to even bother with it because I was concerned about it turning what's a labor of love into a business. Not that there's anything wrong with business. I'm definitely in favor of being paid for one's work. But I wanted the show to be free, and I'm one of those people who gets annoyed by commercials. But we put in the Patreon account, and people actually started to support us with tips and recurring donations. And it's a really nifty system. I like it. But I was thinking it was going to be for coffee money or maybe to buy a book or DVD here and there. And it it turns out that over the past two months, both Karen and I have had uh, some very interesting challenges in our life. And it turns out that the support of those Patreon donations seriously helped make that a little less painful. We are grateful for those donations. And I'm not using this to beg for everybody to sign up for it. I just wanted to say thank you very clearly and sincerely to the people who donated to us because we both appreciate your support for the show and you helped make Karen and my life a little bit easier with your generosity, especially over here at Team Smith headquarters. Okay, from here on out, it'll be nice and lighthearted for the rest of the show. Uh, wait. Actually, we're going to be talking about animal mutilations and horrible, disgusting stuff to do with monsters and dead livestock. Huh. Do you still call it livestock if it's dead? Is that an oxymoron? Oh, is it an oxen moron? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. In this episode, we'll be talking to Colin Schneider, a.k.a. the Crypto Kid, who I met recently at CryptidCon in Kentucky. Hopefully, we'll be having some more interviews with people I met there and get some good, classic cryptid monster content. But as I mentioned in a recent episode, I'm also anxious to work on my series on magic, and we'll be getting that going in our next two episodes as we tackle grimoires. But for now... It's time for some good, old, classic Monster Talk. Colin Schneider is one of the youngest active Freudian and cryptozoology researchers in the United States. He's now 17 years old, but he's been doing this, what, since you were 16? 
Uh, since I was 11. Since you were 11, so quite a few years. And he's been involved in cryptozoology and ufology since he was 13, after he visited the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Uh, salute there to... Uh, uh, Lauren Coleman. Line. Lauren Coleman. Oh, my God. Lauren, I'm so sorry. I'm going to edit that out because I just had a brain fart. I'm, <laughs> Colin, here's another piece of advice. Never turn 40. It's all downhill after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> a frequent attendee of conferences at about the unexplained, Colin lectures at numerous events around the Ohio and Pennsylvania area. He's also a regional representative for the Center for Vordian Zoology and the host of the Crypto Kid Radio Show on WCJV, Digital Broadcasting Network. And you can listen to that on Monday nights. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And before we actually started this interview, you mentioned that you were working with the CFZ to increase teen outreach. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But I'm going to let Karen kick off the questions while I try to recover my ability to speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Colin. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a goal of mine to come on the show for a while. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. And we're just very curious to find out how you got interested in this field at such a young age. Uh, I... Every interview I do about this, I always kind of have a different answer, and it's a whole bunch of things. Um, Goosebumps, uh, the book series by R.L. Stein was definitely a big influence in my interest in this stuff. And um, But directly, the first thing I really heard about cryptozoology from was Monster Quest, uh, History Channel's show about, oh gosh, it's almost 10 years ago now that it started airing. Yeah, it slightly predates our show because it was definitely an inspiration. Yeah. The first episode I ever saw was on the Ohio Grassman. And it terrified me because they portrayed these, this Bigfoot creature as being hyper-aggressive. And it was literally in my own backyard because I live in Ohio. So it was like and you have an grass, eight-year-old. Right. <laughs> and an, eight, an eight-year-old watching this thing about this giant ape creature that that – um, according to old newspaper stories, literally ripped a person off of a uh, uh, um, off of his horse and and killed him. Like that's not that that's scary. And so yeah. because it was scary, it interested me, and I just started looking more and more into this stuff. And uh, every episode pretty much had Lauren Coleman on it. It did wearing and- the same shirt. I'm joking, but I, I, yeah, exactly. They actually, I, I've talked to him about that. They, they brought him up for like one day and then filmed like everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how it and works. Lauren always seemed like just this very knowledgeable, grandfatherly figure that, um, I don't know, I just was. I I just kind of idolized him as a kid, and I bought almost all of his books as soon as I could, as soon as I got the money. And um, as you as you mentioned at the beginning, I got a chance when I was thirteen to go to the International Cryptozoology Museum, and I remember walking out after meeting him and buying every book in the gift shop, uh, with walking out with a stack of books. Um, all of my vacation money spent before we even got to the place where we were actually staying, thinking, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to be a monster hunter. I want to look for these things. And I haven't looked back since. That's neat. You know, I actually, we were just doing um, a a multi-part episode on the uh, uh, Kentucky uh, Goblins case, the the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins. And in that uh, document, which was by... uh, uh, Blecker and Davis, or Davis and Blecker, uh, they mention uh, Lauren Coleman as, as part of uh, the some of the research. I think we were just talking about the Evansville uh, sort of uh, fish man attack. And, and I, I thought, my gosh, Lauren's been around forever. I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's really 
managed to take up that role of sort of, uh, he took the torch sort of from John Keel, uh, maybe from Ivan Sanderson, you know, that sort well, of. Uh, he was around during John Keel's and, like, yeah, and, yeah, and I think he, I want to believe, if I remember correctly, that he was actually uh, uh, like helping out Sanderson maybe at one point. Uh, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Sanderson and Hoovelmans and uh, Coleman all had. Uh, um, they they sent letters to each other. They were um, they worked together on different projects. Yeah. Uh, I remember in several books, uh, Lauren said that Sanderson called him his man in the West. That's nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's fine because we we kind of end up doing the same sort of thing now. We typically do it through uh, email and you know right. Facebook groups and other things. But it is really fun to collaborate on research across the country or across the world. Um, I mean, I think one of my first collaborative projects was done with Kylie Sturgis, and she was in Australia, and I was in... Actually, I was in Colorado at the time we were working on it. I was at the uh, Stanley Hotel. So I was in the Stanley Hotel researching a ghost case, and Kylie was on the ground doing field work for me. It was awesome. Or with me. I shouldn't say for me. Mm-hmm. We were just, it, was, it was nice cooperation across the world. So I, I, I love it. I love collaboration, and I, I think that's great that it's existed all this time. So yeah, well, it helps you to I think uh, just take on different perspectives, and if you just work on something yourself, uh, you can get a bit of tunnel vision. Oh yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. Also helps to uh, be that voice of sanity if you're going down a rabbit hole. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you intend to be going down a rabbit hole, so yeah, that's <laughs> slightly. So different. do you work by yourself, Colin, or do you work with a team of others or colleagues? Um, I work pretty closely with a couple different people, um, and I am anymore. I'm one of the major movers and shakers in the uh, Center for Freudian Zoology, uh, which is the largest cryptozoological organization in the world, um, which I will continue to flaunt because I love the group, and I think that not only are we the biggest, but we're the best. Um, and uh, working with John Downs, who is the director – um has just been amazing he was along with coleman one of my childhood heroes and now i talk to him basically every day um and not just about cryptozoology but we've become friends we just chat about you know star trek and life and universe and everything and it's just absolutely amazing to me that someone that i grew up watching that influenced uh how I think about things and wh- how I look at things and uh, where my life has gone can be a close friend of mine. And uh, that's honestly one of the reasons that I do this, uh, as well as my love for the subject, is because I get to work with people that I've lived my entire life looking up to. Was it was it difficult to um, to get involved with them? Did you feel like you had challenges? Oh, no. no even with your young age, it wasn't a problem? John is one of the few major cryptozoologists in the field that is like anyone can go up to him about anything and he will immediately like pay attention to you and only you um and discuss whatever you need um i remember when i first got involved i was uh with the cfc i was about 14 and uh I was really nervous when i first um asked him a question because i was because um for the longest time, I was just working with the guy in charge of the uh, U.S. division, which is a guy named uh, Ronan Colin, um, who lives in Ireland. That's and a cool uh, name. <laughs> he, he, he's a very nice guy, but he's very professional. 
and um, I'm not. I mean, I am professional, but I also like joke around about things. Sure. And I was I was worried that uh, when I contacted John about uh, something or other, I don't even remember what it was. Um, I was worried that uh, just that type of thing would uh, get him to be a little stand standoffish, and I didn't want it to be like that. But um, I sent him a message on Facebook because uh, that's honestly the easiest way to get in touch with him, and he immediately replied back. Um, and we just started chatting and within six months he started pushing me to, uh, write an article for the journal. And, uh, it, it was the easiest thing in the world to get involved with the CFC, to be honest. Um, you join and, uh, someone will get in touch with you, ask if you just are interested in learning or do you want to work with people and work, um, on research. And if you do, you, some, the people that, work in the CFC are honestly some of the nicest people I've ever worked with in this field. I've worked with quite a few. That's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so what sort of things are you working on? I mean, I know a little bit about what you've worked on because of your presentation at a uh, cryptid con, but uh, like just what's day in the life of a, of a, <laughs> of a, of a 40 in slash cryptozoology researcher like for you? Well, um, I really have three major things I do. Um, on a monthly basis. Uh, I'm working on a book concerning uh, the topic for my lecture at uh, CryptidCon, which is um, looking at cryptid attacks on livestock um, because there's a lot of weird aspects to it and something that's not really discussed much. And that takes up a lot of my time. Uh, the other, One of the other major projects that I've been working on is uh, I've been working with the CFZ um, on something we call the Next Generation Initiative. And it's kind of like an outreach program and a community for uh, young cryptozoologists or young people interested in working in cryptozoology to kind of help them along and uh, have a community where they can work with other people their age to really learn and become better researchers. This is something that doesn't really exist. And there are quite a few of us around. Um, we're just not out there and doing much because it is really difficult to get into that position. Um, and then the final thing that I do is uh, work on kind of branding myself, uh, if you will. Um, and that, that really just covers uh, doing lectures, um, writing articles. I've been published 15 times now, 16 times. Um, and then uh, just doing my radio show once so, a week. So, so you know, humble self-promotion. <laughs> well, I, I think it's important. <laughs> no, I, I it is. No, no. Look, I, I'm a guy with a podcast. Of course it's important. It's critical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, especially for a young person to, you know, be able to say, well, I've been published. Um, I do this, this, and this. Um, I, I reach out and I do things. Um, because there are a lot of young researchers that um, are doing some phenomenal work, but they aren't public about it. And they, they aren't visible about it. They, yeah. they aren't seen, so they're not thought of. And it can be really difficult, even though you may have some of the greatest research around, it can be really difficult to break into the field um, if you aren't, from the beginning, working on getting published and, and building those connections. I, I, that's actually really a, a really good point. I, I think we've actually talked about this on a few episodes where um, – that's one of the differences between uh, sort of mainstream scientific research and cryptozoological research is among amateurs, 
there's a tendency to try to hoard knowledge rather than share it. And mm -hmm. that means that people duplicate the same work, trying to find the same information. And it means that people can't build on the work that other people have done very easily. So uh, I think anything the CFZ does to sort of promote that sharing through journal publishing, um, also uh, just to build that uh, network of people willing to do the work is a good idea. I, I, you know, I, I, I have that problem where I'm a, I'm a fan of the field, but obviously also critical of it and, and because there are a lot of people out there who just sort of do the sort of echo chambery repeating of stories without actually digging in to find out what's going on. So when I saw your presentation uh, at, at Crypticon, I knew we wanted to talk to you because uh, you'd done such hard work and really what seemed to be rock solid research into the topic that you were looking at. Uh, what is the topic? What yeah. was the topic of your talk? Um, it was uh, called Bloodsucking Beasties and Shadowy Stalkers, and it was looking <laughs> at uh, cryptid attacks on livestock, but from the viewpoint of like purported vampiric attacks. Um, okay. Right, and it ex extended far beyond just like uh, cattle mutilations, for example. Right, mm -hmm. or, or the chupacabra. I only talked Chup about the chupacabra for maybe 10 minutes. Right, right. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you found? Yeah, um, so the first thing that I heard about um, besides the chupacabra with this, um, was what's known as the vampire beast of Bladenboro or the, uh, Bladenboro cat. And it's sort of one of those underground stories that a lot of researchers seem to be familiar with, but nobody's done a lot of like, uh, investigation to what actually happened. And so it interested me because I love vampires and I love the idea of a vampire cat because it's just fun. <laughs> um, and what happened was in December of 1953 through January 1954, this small town of Bladenboro, North Carolina, had uh, this rash of violent attacks on uh, dogs, um, poultry, cats, um, sheep, so a handful of other livestock, um, as well as a rash of what were said to be Black Panther attack, uh, Black Panther sightings. And uh, the whole town panicked. Uh, over a thousand hunters uh, over the course of a couple weeks started going into the swamps and the forests around the town um, with brandishing not just guns but clubs and big sticks and whatever they could grab because they were um, panicking about these animals because they were worried that they were going to attack a child or um, someone else. Uh, and they they actually at one point outnumbered the town uh there were so many hunters from other states and around just the state of north carolina that were flocking to this town and so that level of mass hysteria fascinated me and i wanted to know more um i have um mostly a, uh, as complete as i can get of a timeline of newspaper articles about this uh creature and what's really interesting is, uh, except for two examples, there were there was no real sighting of the Black Panther things around the kills. Um, the only examples where that happened was uh, on January eighth, a woman, uh, a woman uh, was looking at the sunset on her porch. And uh, her dog got attacked by the large cat-like creature, and she said when she tried to shoo it away, uh, it ran after her. 
um, her husband came out with his gun and the creature just took off. But um, besides that, there were only kind of glimpses of a strange looking beast uh, in the outskirts when people discovered the animals that were killed. Now, the reason that people thought it was a uh, vampire cat was because um, all of the animals that were actually killed were killed in more or less the same way. It, it was pretty gruesome. They were um, their skulls were said to be crushed. Their um, jaws were ripped open. Um, some of them had their tongues removed. Others didn't. Um, the animals were slashed on their sides. And, of course, they were said to be drained of blood. Uh, sometimes there were puncture wounds on their neck. Sometimes there weren't. It, it would depend on the state of the animal at the time, whether or not there were uh, you know, uh, slash marks on the neck to be able to determine if there were puncture wounds there. And um, no one actually uh, – there were no actual autopsies of the animals to determine whether or not they were actually drained of blood. It was just said that they were because they couldn't find any blood around the animals. So it was just assumed that it was a vampire creature attacking them. Um, Bladenborough is uh, a really interesting little town. Uh, they uh, actually hold a Bladenboro beast festival every year. And I've been wanting to go down for a couple of years. I just haven't had a chance, but uh, what's interesting is unlike places like Point Pleasant that with the Mothman Festival or uh, Van Meter with the uh, Van Meter Visitor Festival, Bladenboro's festival uh, actually uses the creature to fund their band program for the high school, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, and the Bladenboro case it has a lot of tropes that are seen in other cases um, of these creature attacks that uh, I really just kind of stumbled onto more of them and I decided, hey, this would make a pretty good book. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about some of those tropes of some of the things that you see? Yeah. The, oh, I wanted... the... oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. go ahead, Karen. I just wanted to ask a specific question about the uh, the panther sightings because uh, I'm from Australia originally and we have a lot of those sightings there, big cat sightings mm -hmm. and, and claims. And uh, just in regards to the the origins of these claims, they're, they're not native creatures to Australia, but there are these different uh, urban legends about how they came to Australia. Some say that they escaped from a zoo and uh, other claims are that they were brought to Australia by U.S. servicemen during World War II. So I'm just wondering if you've got the same kind of theme going here, either for the Bladenborough uh, claims or for elsewhere, if you have different urban legends about the origins of these panthers and big cats. Not really. The area where most of these attacks are is is the uh, that I've that I found at least is the eastern side of the United States, kind of the Mississippi is kind of the dividing line here. And after uh, east of the Mississippi, that's where most of these attacks are. Mm -hmm. And um, when they're associated with um, panthers, uh, generally they're said to be mad panthers, mad mountain lions. And despite the fact that they're said to be extinct, um, pretty much anyone you talk to um, – in these areas um, where I live, uh, down in North Carolina, even up in Maine, uh, will tell you that they're still here. Um, now, I'm not making a claim that they are, mm -hmm. but uh, I, it, it's very much a part of the rural culture that mountain lions are here. And the government doesn't want to admit it. 
<laughs> no, that's that's true, and I, I mean the the those stories are out there, and there's that's always that government cover up angle. I, I hear that over mm-hmm. and over again in these online stories and in in in, in uh, various places where I hear them on whether it's coast to coast or different people calling in and telling stories. It's um, that that angle that the government's trying to suppress it. They don't want us to know about these animals. I find that so interesting, like why there's that sort of conspiratorial anti big government angle going on with it. Bladenborough. Um, no one ever ma- actually, as far as I could tell, made a claim that it was a mountain lion, but panther is synonymous with mountain lion in the area. Uh, so just by calling it a panther, they kind of did say it might have been, but there were three or four bobcats that were killed in the area during the panic. And actually, there was an animal, a strange spotted cat that some speculated was an ocelot that was actually hit by a car at that same time. And I, I've been trying to track down whatever happened to it, but I haven't found a single thing concerning it. Uh, also, there was an unusually large dog named Big Boy that uh, apparently escaped a week before the attack started happening. And uh, Zeke Stanton, the uh, local who owned Big Boy, said that he fed the dog on nothing but blood and scraps from the local slaughterhouse, and he said that it developed a taste for it. So uh, that was also one of the explanations that was being passed around. So what, what year was nice. this again? Uh, December of 1953 through January 1954. Back to um – the exsanguination part of things. In your talk, you mentioned some things that I think are not said often enough about some of the reasons why uh, an animal that's found dead on a farm might seem to have been drained of blood, but might not be. Could you talk about that a little? I want to preface this by uh, saying that I have done extensive research into um, what happens when an animal dies to the blood and um, the, the attack methods of these animals. Uh, of uh, known animals. So uh, d- even though I'm not a zoologist, um, I, I have done the research and I can back it up with um, credible sources. So when something dies, um, the heart stops pumping, the blood thickens, and uh, gravity takes over and kind of pulls the blood at the bottom of the body where the center of gravity is. And this process is called lividity. And what happens is uh, even if you like pick up the animal and move it around or uh, you know even cut into the animal, you probably won't find blood because it's all pooled into uh, one area. And um, I've read several um, interviews with uh, – with um, veterinarians talking about this, saying how it can be incredibly difficult to um, actually determine whether or not an animal has been exsanguinated. Um, so it, even if uh, you're, you know, you're an experienced um, hunter or farmer or police officer, like most of the uh, people who look at these animals are, they are would not be able to tell whether or not the animal has actually been drained of blood. Another um, uh, another factor that does contribute to the idea of these animals being, uh, the, these creatures being vampiric, is uh, many of these animals that will go out and kill livestock, uh, domestic dogs, um, wild dogs, um, pretty much any kind of cat on the planet, uh, and a handful of others, 
um, most of them will attack the throat. And uh, there's a process. There, there's a um, behavior called surplus killing, in which a coyote or a wolf or most carnivores will um, start attacking animals when there's um, a high number of them, and they will just kill and kill and kill until the entire group is gone. And generally, when these animals attack, they just get them in the throat um, and then move on. And I've talked. I, I live right across from a farm, and doing research for my book, I uh, went over there because um, I was curious. I wanted to know if uh, the, just the average farmer knows about some of these things. And even though we have coyotes in the area, and I constantly hear about coyotes attacking the animals, he was not familiar with lividity or surplus killing because it is uh, surplus killing is a rarer occurrence but when it does happen it can be devastating um i know of an example where a pack of wolves of like three or four um slaughtered over 300 elk in a, just a handful of hours wow. hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah. Um, okay. In some of these cases, there was a case in 77, uh, by Salem, Ohio, where 134 sheep were killed and uh, by an an unseen animal uh, just by a bite on the throat um, in a single night. Oh my God! And it must have been really difficult to count them. I mean, people kept falling asleep while trying to get the number. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, but that is, it, I, I, you actually hit on something I, I really think is, is uh, under, uh, not underreported. I'm not sure what the right word is. The fact is that you can become a farmer. There's not like a high barrier to entry from an educational perspective. And there's nothing in farming training that's really all about, you know, here's what happens to your livestock after it dies. You know, keeping it alive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty common. But I don't think people really understand what happens when animals die. And there's a huge... Not the average person, certainly. Right, right. It's just, I mean, that's not your goal. I mean, your goal is to keep the animals alive, help them reproduce, get them to market, or whatever it is. Uh, and, and there's just a, a lot of ignorance out there about what happens after animals die. And I see this again and again, where relatively mundane, normal post-mortem things happen to creatures, and it completely confounds the general public. Um, well, you, we talk about that uh, on uh, things like the Montauk monster, where you have a, a mundane animal soaking in water, gets washed up on the shore, 
and it looks weird because the hair is off of it. So a hairless animal, suddenly it's a monster. No, not really. But to the general public, it looks unusual. You know, animals that are starved, you know, animals that are deformed. There's, there's all kinds of really mundane things that happen that can transform something completely normal or within the spectrum of normal into something quite mysterious. And it's really, I think once people have embraced a sort of paranormal or unusual explanation, it's hard to talk them down from that. You know, if someone's convinced that, that, that there's a blood-sucking monster killing their livestock, it's hard to convince them, no, your livestock's dying, but it's something normal, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that part of the um, reason that uh, not many people know about uh, what happens after animals die is because the topic is kind of taboo. It, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of gory and gross, and not a lot of people are comfortable bringing it up. I'm a little... Uh, I'm a little disturbed, so I think it's interesting. Um, but I do uh, when I do talk about uh, these things, I do have to preface it during my talks that it can be a little gross, and I yeah. always try to dial it back. Right, think, right. <laughs> even even when it comes to food, just the we're so far removed from the way that animals are killed and our food sources, and uh, you know people used to butcher animals on their farms and. Uh, and just make use of all of the different parts of the animals. And nowadays everything's wrapped up in cling wrap in a supermarket. And uh, so we, we certainly don't know about how animals are killed, how they die, uh, and what becomes of them. It's uh, yeah. not something people want to know about nowadays. Well, and, and I think, Karen, you're a, or at least you have been a vegetarian, right? I don't know if you still are. I grew up vegetarian. My my mother is uh, vegetarian, and so I've had periods of my life of being vegan, vegetarian. Right now, I'm pescatarian, so I eat seafood, but not other different that, kinds of meat. That's that's like Anglican, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Episcopalian. <laughs> it sounds religious. <laughs> it really does. The uh, I I uh, I come from a family where like both of my sisters are vegetarian and um, really oh yeah in Georgia in Georgia. <laughs> and, but my family uh, has been farmers, ranchers, uh, and so I've, I grew up around the farm. I helped process animals, uh, and I'm I'm definitely a carnivore. Although I've experimented with vegetarianism. Um, so I know I I'm, know ca- that. <laughs> I'm capable of doing it. It's not my thing, but, uh, like John Cleese Deep said, fried okra and- <laughs> if the Lord didn't want us to eat animals, why did he make them out of meat? I don't know. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> but, uh, but the reason I say it is the, um, uh, there, there are, in fact, I guess we'll probably have to slap a, uh, explicit label on this episode because we're going to talk about gross stuff. But a lot of the things that happen in, in some of these, uh, animal predations where, where, uh, a farmer comes upon his uh, cow or his sheep, and uh, mysterious things have happened to it. The, I'm thinking about the cattle mutilation cases. They always talk about the anus being cored out, or the the, the uh, genitalia being removed, the eyeballs being removed. You know, like laser precision cuts, that sort of thing. Yeah, these are all <laughs> the sort of things that happen during normal attacks by predators. That they they go for the easy entry. Animal hides tough. It's hard to get in there, with the peculiar exception of rabbits. I think, generally speaking, it's hard to skin an animal. I don't know why rabbits come up so easily, <laughs> but they do. Um, but but yeah, so eating like animals will eat out the rectum of a, of a kill, and they'll tear off the genitalia, and then 
that'll dry out in the sun or, you know, different things will tighten it and stretch it. As the animal gets distended by uh, the gases expanding inside its body, they can change the shape of the wounds. There's lots of things that happen that are completely nasty to discuss, but which can lead to uh, a really peculiar interpretations by people. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up cattle mutilations. I thought you were because... going to say rectums being eaten out because I thought, <laughs> I thought no, gross. Too. That's really disgusting. What's wrong with us? <laughs> well, well um, doing research on this topic um, and being very public about what I'm doing, because uh, partially because I want to get some more recent um, attacks from uh, people because uh, I don't have any. Almost all of the um, stuff that I have in my book that I'm working on right now is from uh, newspapers or police reports or those type of uh, first um, firsthand stories that uh, do have a lot of flaws in them. Uh, they don't always cover the right thing. They don't always have accompanying pictures. It can be really hard to determine what attacked these animals just from the vague descriptions in the newspaper. But um, people bring up cattle mutilations all the time. And uh, it's something that I'm very adamant about not being connected. Because uh, just because it's weird doesn't mean that it has to be connected to this other weird thing. Um, and in fact... They don't really have a lot of similarities besides an animal being dead. Um, a lot of the times, uh, the reason the, uh, cre the that creatures are being um, blamed is because they're either seen in the area at the same time or there are clear signs of predation um, flat out that anyone can tell. Like, they're, they're bite marks um, instead of, you know, the, the, the um, uh, apparent surgical... Um, cuts. Also, what what really does make these uh, appear to be weird is just the high level of animals that have been killed. Um, there was a case in 1970, uh, December, um, El Reno, Oklahoma. Um, it gave us the great name of the Abominable Chicken Man. There was this there was this anonymous farmer that uh, was um, sitting in his home. Uh, at night when he heard his chickens squawking out in, the, out in his coop. Um, it sounded like they were being attacked. So he grabbed his gun, um, went outside to go see what was going on. And the light in the coop was on. The door was ripped off and broken in half. And uh, there were just feathers everywhere, but no birds. He had about... Um, he had about a hundred... 10 chickens in there and they were all gone um what what makes this weird other than chickens disappearing was that apparently on the ground there were these giant human-like footprints and on the walls and the door there were b bloody handprints um the farmer and the uh, local newspaper uh, sent photos of these uh, prints to uh, Lawrence Curtis, who was the at the time the director of the Oklahoma City Zoo. And they also actually shipped him the door from the uh, chicken coop, which I found interesting. Um, apparently, he actually kept the door in his office uh, until he retired, which I just find quite amusing. Yeah, and and uh, Curtis was unable to to determine what made them. 
he said that they kind of looked like a cross between a bear and a human. Um, but he wasn't sure. He said they were definitely, uh, sorry, a gorilla and a human. Sorry. Uh, he said they were definitely not bear and they, but they were definitely primate. Um, and that was about as far as he was willing to go. Um, it was never really explained how, if this was a Bigfoot, like people claim, it was never really explained how Bigfoot managed to steal 110 chickens within the span of a couple minutes. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of the case because it was, uh, the farmer was very, was, uh, anonymous and there were not a lot of details given about um the area and uh certain things so it might have happened i think it did happen but i don't i'm not sure if it happened in the way that the newspaper said it happened and unfortunately uh curtis has passed on as far as i can tell so i have i'm just not able to uh, get in contact with him yeah (laughs) for obvious reasons um (laughs) But it does kind of show that uh, the the high number of animals uh, that uh, that were purportedly killed or were missing uh, were was the weird factor there. It's a peculiar case. When you talked about that in, in Kentucky, I thought that was I, I, it seemed like almost like fraud because like like that's a lot of chickens to go. So either the guys Chicken the time poacher. right right or or the the timeline's wrong or, or, or it's, you know, he's covering up something. I don't, although I can't imagine he had chicken insurance. I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking. (laughs) It's also one of those stories where, um, it's been written about quite a few times. Um, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark wrote about it in their uh, creatures from the outer edge. John Keel wrote about it in his, um, uh, strange creatures from time and space. Um, Colin and Janet Board wrote about it. Um, quite a few people have talked about this case, but none of them expressed any kind of doubt that it happened, and none of them gave any other possible explanations. Yeah, um, I, I don't think that the question of how did a Bigfoot manage to get 110 chickens out of a chicken coop within probably five to ten minutes? Yeah. Hey, have you ever came. have you ever uh, been around a chicken coop? Yes. Yeah, I have two. I the very idea of, of trying to round up that many chickens at once as an animal <laughs> seems absurd. I mean, I like you can get a, an, an animal like if you could get a, get a dog, a really hungry dog in a chicken coop, it could kill a lot of chickens really quick. But it can't get rid of them, right? And you know, it, it's like even you know yeah, that's that's a little peculiar. Right. Chickens are really good at getting away. They. <laughs> <laughs> They, they, uh, yeah, it does sound like a mistake with the time frame, yeah. but uh, that's just on the surface of things. And um, that that's one of the reasons that uh, it's really hard to use just uh, newspapers yes. for uh, these kind of reports because, um, you know, a lot of these, these newspapers are small town. Uh, so the only reason they're talking about this stuff is because they know people will buy it and it's vaguely interesting, more interesting than, uh, who married who last Saturday. Um, so oftentimes they'll play up things Mm -hmm. like, uh, they'll play up, oh, it was a vampire or, um, and 110 chickens were just gone. Um, that type of thing. And, uh, it can be really hard to determine what was, I hate to say falsified, but what was played up um, 
or emphasized for effect versus um, what actually happened. And uh, some details are just flat out left out. Like um, certain uh, sometimes uh, in some of the older newspaper stories, because I have things that go back to the 1870s, um, some of these stories, uh, in a lot of them, um, women, if they're married, they won't actually have their own name. It'll be Mrs. then yeah. their husband's name. And it'd be really hard and really frustrating as a researcher because I hate to just say that. Um, and uh, also they'll, they'll uh, call people by their nicknames. And just by their nickname, sometimes uh, the last name won't even be given. So it can make it almost impossible to try to track down anybody. Yeah, yeah. that's. Uh, and I, I was looking at a newspaper that hangs on the wall in one of my uh, favorite uh, restaurants in my hometown. And they had like a 10th anniversary uh, opening uh, special. It was just like an ad for the paper like for that for that restaurant that was ten years after it opened. So this was, I think, nineteen fifty five. The restaurant opened in nineteen forty five, and then on the same page they had all these other local news stories. Uh, and I for some for some reason while I was waiting for my order, I, I just started reading the other news stories, and it was it was funny like what passed for news back then. So it was things like, <laughs> you know, John Smith had a birthday party and his favorite kids arrived, and like you know, <laughs> it was and it's like uh, you know. The Parkinsons are having a visitor from out of town, and she's going to yes. be staying for a whole week. And I'm like, how is this news? How is this in the newspaper? And exactly. When I was doing uh, research into the Silvercliff Cemetery, um, I was looking at a newspaper from the 19th century, and it was called the Wet Mountain Tribute. And everything was just like that, really mundane stuff. Yeah. And, and, and then I think we've talked about briefly, uh, it's not really one of our like regular episode topics, but the, uh, the Great Airship Mystery. Um, and then maybe like the Aurora, yeah. Texas UFO crash. The, those the, those newspapers at the time, they seemed to mix fiction and reality just absolutely seamlessly with, and just assumed everybody who was reading it would know what was real and what's a tall tale. It was it mm -hmm. was a it was a different time, and I think there's been these like. Um, uh, this is a suspicion. I haven't actually done any formal research on this, but I, I suspect there's been rises and falls in the way that uh, uh, American journalism has, like, you know, pressed for accuracy and then it's dropped away, and pressed for accuracy has dropped away. And as different editors come and go, I imagine there's pressure on that. But uh, I think we actually probably need to do an episode on on the sort of the, the role of journalism because I feel like these Fortean topics and monster topics, they get short shrift um, in general, I think uh, unless human beings are killed, uh, in general, these stories are uh, given like, here's a curiosity, here's a bit of news that we're never going to follow up on. You know, <laughs> if you're a researcher 50 years from now, good luck with it because we're giving you just enough to sell a newspaper and we don't really care what the outcome is. And they do the same thing on the news now. We talk about it a lot where it's, you know, here's a spooky story. Here's a mysterious video. We're playing the X-Files music and now we'll never know what it was, right? It just goes <laughs> out right at the end of the show. It's just, uh, that's mysterious. That's odd. And they always do these around Halloween too where they play up a lot of, uh, is it ghost? Is it real? Yeah. And you it, decide. <laughs> it's, oh, I hate it. I hate it. Oh my gosh. I, I think... Um, what's really interesting about these type of attacks is um, even more so than just the general monster story, these can get people riled up and get people working together. And that actually allows the newspapers to be able to cover it more 
um, generally. Um, some of these cases, it's it's like a blow-by-blow daily um, thing. Even if there were no sightings or attacks for a week, they're still talking about who went out on an expedition looking for this creature um, and, and who did what, who freaked out about this, and then they'll just rewrite all of the encounters. And it's really interesting um, because uh, it, it's unique in the sense that there's no real no other real level of um constant reporting on these type of things but then uh once people get tired of it it'll just drop off and you'll never hear about it again Mm -hmm. um one of the other really interesting things about some of these cases is i'm not quite sure if it can be seen in other monster stories but in some of these i found that uh the creatures kind of are used as a backdrop for other conversations in the town um there was a uh case oh man i can't remember uh i think it was in massachusetts in the 50s and uh there was a whole bunch of cat sightings um and a handful of dogs were attacked um but that wasn't as important to the newspapers as uh the uh factory workers that were quitting to hunt for the cat because they were um, upset that the uh, dump across the street was um, smelling to high heaven because it was summer. Uh, so they decided to all quit their jobs temporarily and go and hunt for the cat until the uh, stench went away. And that was covered eight days in a row. Wow. <laughs> There are so many unique aspects to some of these stories. Um, There was another case in um, Granby, Connecticut in the 40s where the um, state fish and wildlife director said that if anyone catches the panther, he would personally grill it and feed it to the first hundred people that show up to his house. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And that that case had a whole bunch of peculiarities. There were a bunch of teens that were out um, in one of the local wildlife preserves that were um, making out. And uh, some of the boys had guns um, and they were claiming that they were hunting for the uh, cat that was attacking um, sheep and rabbits in the area. And uh, they got arrested and um, newspaper headlines said uh, Granby cat used as alibi for – Oh, I, I think it was um, cr- uh, canoodling teens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. And that's one of the – while there are a lot of flaws with um, you know, some of the, the – how these stories are portrayed in the media, you also get some of the interesting sass and um, commentary on other things in the town using these creatures as kind of the the – the way to get this discussion going. I think it's, it's one of the more unique aspects of these things that you don't always see in other aspects of, uh, Fortiana. Well, I, I have to say, I commend you for bothering to go back to the original resources, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the primary sources, wherever you can. Um, mm-hmm. there's so Not many people do that. Well, that's true. And there's, there's so many Fortian researchers who are basically just clearing houses for these stories and they don't really filter them or evaluate them or do any additional work. And uh, 
So I think you're on the right path here, you know, trying to get back to the primary sources, doing interviews if you can get in touch with actual witnesses, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So and mm -hmm. applying some critical thinking to these topics. Uh, so what's your show like? I mean, if people wanted to check it out, what, what sort of things do you do? I was, I was, I've only had a chance to listen to one episode and it was um, an interview with the guy who does Small Town Monsters. And I was enjoying that, but I didn't get to finish the whole thing before we got on here tonight. Oh, yeah, that was a crazy episode. Did you get to the point with the raccoon? Yeah, that's actually exactly where I stopped. <laughs> he was like he was staying in a cabin in Tennessee and a raccoon just showed up in the middle of the interview. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, That's one of the beauties of doing live radio. Yeah, um, yeah. I, so <laughs> I surprised me. Well, you can't trust him because you've got these little bandit masks on. You know they're no good. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> My producer actually um, was on the call with us, like always, and uh, she mutes herself to the broadcaster. But the entire time Seth was talking about the raccoon, she was going, "Watch out! It's rabies season. Be yeah. careful." <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, my, my radio show, um, The Crypto Kid, it's um, internet radio, which um, I think is getting bigger. I hope it does because I love doing live radio because I don't have to sit and edit because I've done that before. And I, I just like letting things be how they are. Um, it gives me a bit more of an excuse if it's uh, lower audio quality. Sure. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, The Crypto Kid started out as – really kind of a way to um, have some of the top uh, researchers in the field, some of the um, real movers and shakers in, in the field of cryptozoology, as well as um, skeptics and um, witnesses and other people to come on the show and not really talk about cases or stories like a lot of um, places do, but to talk about ideas. Um, yes, we do talk about cases on occasion, but we really do that with a focus of, um, now what do these cases mean? What can we kind of get from these? What are some of the explanations for some of these creatures? Um, what is the importance of Mothman? Um, that type of thing. Like that, the, the whole um, cultural aspect and the, uh, the, the, the ideas that don't quite get enough attention in the field anymore. Um, I, I really try to focus on. And I also try to make it approachable for um, everyone. Um, not just people that are big into the field, um, be, because I think that it can be really hard to find a good, uh, show that is consistent in quality that, uh, is easy to approach that doesn't just tell stories all the time. Um, and I have, uh, I've been really working hard on trying to get some of the, uh, biggest guests I can. Um, I, I'm having Lyle Blackburn come on in a couple weeks to talk about um, some of the uh, ideas behind uh, the Southern Sasquatch. Um, I'm having uh, Sharon Hill, who I met at uh, uh, CryptidCon with you, Blake, um, to come on and talk about her book, Scientifical American, uh, Americans. And so I just – I'm really focusing on some of the uh, importance and, uh, you know, what – why these things matter and what are some of the ideas that these things that we can get from these things um as well as trying to be as um as uh objective as i can be because i think it's important and um honestly i don't know if any of these things exist um except for the thylacine um that's one of the few things that i will say i'm 
fairly confident it exists, but that's purely because um, I love it and I really want it to exist. And I haven't done a lot of like my own expeditions and stuff into it. I'm purely a fan when it comes to the thylacine. Oh, but I like, think we, we want it to exist too. It's a beautiful right. animal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, incredible. But, but uh, I try to stay as objective as I possibly can. I think that's something that not a lot of other shows do. So besides this work that you're doing with the CFC in, in your book that you're working on, I guess I'm curious about what are you planning to do as far as like your education and career? Where, where are you? Do you plan to keep this separate or are you going to try to find a job that works together towards uh, like a common unified goal? Well, see, I know a lot of people um, try to make uh, their living in this field. And um, I respect those who figure it out because obviously they're doing what they love and uh, I, I highly respect that. But I I honestly wouldn't be happy just working in this field because I want to contribute not just to the field of cryptozoology and some of the more fringe topics, but I also want to contribute positively to science. Um I, I don't think I'd be happy just writing books on the weird and uh, doing research into the history of some of these things because I also have a drive to discover new animals and uh, work with animals and discover new things about animals. Um, so um, I'm looking in right now into what the best uh, education decision would be for me and um some of the things i want to do but right now it's looking like i'm either going to go into um wildlife conservation or uh zoology just as um an overall field um i'd absolutely love to work with a zoo um or work at a uh you know work um on a government level working on uh trying to conserve some of the animals in these areas well, I hope you're able to make that work out. That's uh, it, you're young. You got you know plenty of time to figure all those things out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, good luck with it, and uh, and hopefully we'll get you some additional listeners. People can come check out your show, and when your book comes out, please let us know so we can help you promote it. Definitely, mm -hmm. I will. Um, I hope to have it the the uh, second draft finished by January, and I'll be uh, shipping it around the publishers um, in February. Uh, so by this time next year, I hope it should be out and uh, people can buy it. Um, Very impressive. Thank you. And if you need uh, help with a, a pun uh, for the title <laughs> or anything, let me know. My pun consulting mm -hmm. business is is uh, is working. I mean, it's going. It's moving. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Um, uh, if your listeners are interested in following what I'm doing, uh, you can. Uh, they can find me on Facebook. I have a page that is just a crypto hyphen kid. Um, my website is uh, paranorm101.blogspot.com, and uh, my radio show is on every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on uh, wcjvradio.com. And we'll put a link to all that in our show notes at mustertalk.org. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll just finish up with the usual question. So, Colin, what's your favorite monster? <laughs> well, um, for the longest time, my immediate answer would be Bigfoot. Because uh, that's really one of the things that got me into this field. But now, I think looking at monster under uh, the definition, uh, under the assumption that it's a cryptid, I think I would have to go with the Eastern Cougar. Because um, as I was looking into my book, uh, doing the research for it, I really fell in love with uh, big cats 
and uh, living on the eastern side of the United States, uh, I I really really want a uh, big cat or a um, large feline to still exist here. And um, I I've been building a library on it, and it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. Not just um, under the field of cryptozoology, but also wildlife conservation as a whole. Well, you're at that age. Sorry, yeah, you're at that age now where you'll probably start running into a lot of eastern cougars if you go to bars. (laughs) (laughs) Don't scare him. (laughs) No, Colin, it was great talking with you, and thank you for coming. Oh yes, I know we're very silly people, but I'll cut all that out. So. (laughs) I think you should leave it in. (laughs) We'll we'll leave in some of it. So. Anyway, it definitely it definitely was an honor to ha- uh, to be on and um it uh definitely f- filled a goal of mine of being on a not just um cryptozoology shows but a skeptic show as well and um I'm just really really excited to uh, have this come out. Well, I think it'll oh. be out uh, I believe barring unforeseen obstacles it'll be out <laughs> next week. So uh, I'll Excellent. I'll send cool. you a link when it's up and you can you know put a link out on your Facebook page. And I think this was a lot of fun. I, I really, oh yes, yeah, I'm a great very topic. impressed with your work, and uh, I look forward to seeing what becomes of you. So this is cool. Yeah, I think you're going to do a lot. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stolzner, and I'm Blake Smith. Monster Talk is the science show about monsters. Today, you heard us talking with Colin Schneider, an investigator into matters bizarre and unusual. You can hear him on his radio shows Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern on WCJVRadio.com. A link to his work will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skeptic Magazine or of the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for everyone's support.
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite skeptic content. Colin Schneider is one of the youngest active 40 and cryptozoology. This is a new word to me, cryptozoology. I'll try that again. Is one of, I do these a lot. You know, we, we're, <laughs> this is like our 141st episode. I'm just getting the hang of it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 